This is They Create World, Episode 17, The British 8-Bit Computer Market, Hardware. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are going to go over the computer stuff again, but this time, it's from the British angle. That's right, because in Britain and in Europe as a whole, which kind of took its lead from what was going on in Great Britain, there was a completely different approach to both home computers as hardware systems and computer games as well. The genres were different, the target audiences were different, the people who were making the games were different, and so... Everything that we said about the American market in the last episode, you throw almost all of that out because it is a completely different scene going on across the pond. So there was no real cross-pollination between the United States and Great Britain. It's almost like the computer industry developed completely independently of each other. That's correct. There was very little. We'll get into this, of course, in some more detail. But the Commodore systems did come to Britain in large numbers. So you had a little of that. But the games didn't really come over. Some of them started to a little later on, and we'll get there when we get there. But basically, it was a homegrown market in Britain. And because the British were focused on platforms that Commodore 64 side didn't hit big in the United States, it also meant that that British software, for the most part, was not coming back into the United States as it was made either, because they were mutually exclusive platforms and very different genres. So they really grew up in isolation from each other in the 1980s. And I take it later on, of course, they merged together in the 90s and the 2000s, and then that's why computers are pretty much ubiquitous equals system now, right? Absolutely. By the late 80s, there was starting to be some mixing because the 16-bit platforms were very similar. Mm -hmm. Now, and this we're not going to cover in this episode because we don't get into the 16-bit platforms, but just short form... The main 16-bit home computer platforms were the Atari ST and the Commodore Amiga. Obviously, these are both American systems made by American companies, and they were in both places. Now, the 16-bit home computers did much better in Europe than they did in the United States, so there weren't that many games targeting the Amiga and the ST, specifically in the U.S., because they didn't sell as many units. But you could bring in that Amiga and ST software and the later Commodore 64 software from Europe into the United States, so there was a little more mixing. Then, of course, everybody finally goes PC by the mid-90s, the U.S. transition to the PC in the late 80s, early 90s. The British got there by kind of the mid-90s. And then you really don't have any distinction between the markets anymore. The initial systems were different, but eventually it all merged together into one homogenous system. Exactly. The British hardware industry basically fell apart in the transition from 8 to Mm 16-bit. The companies that had been successful in that country in the 8-bit world were unable to jump to 16-bit computers, which is what gave the opening for those American 16-bit computers to come in. And that's where you lost a lot of the distinctiveness. And then by the mid-90s, it was basically all one giant worldwide computer game market. All right. So where do we want to start off from the beginning here? We know how it was in the United States with the Altair 8800. What was the British equivalent of that? 
Well, the British market got started a couple of years later. Japan was the same way in the early days. It tends to be that you have the market that pioneers something, or the part of the world that pioneers something, like we have with the Altair and the MSI and these S100 computers in the United States. And then it always takes two or three years for kind of the rest of the world to catch up to the pioneer. I'm mm-hmm. talking specifically in electronics here, not in everything in the world. So the British market started a few years later. It really wasn't getting going till about 1978. Mm-hmm. And it started in the exact same way then that the U.S. market did. It started with kits. So by 1978, you have the Trinity in the United States. You're still looking at mostly kit computers in Britain. Now, obviously, the obvious question is, well, you've got the Trinity, so why don't you have fully built computers that are just being imported into Great Britain or into Europe? That would make sense, yeah. And the answer is that you have to look at the cost of living. We talked about this a little bit in the last episode. Basically, an Apple computer is expensive in the United States. Yeah, twelve to $1,800. It's even more expensive in Britain because you have to import it. And so that adds shipping costs, warehousing costs, import duties, customs, all of that stuff. So you've got a more expensive system by the time it gets over there. So it would be something like 1500 to 2500 Well, yeah, uh, pounds. Because then yeah. you also have to, the, the British pound is worth more than the U.S. dollar. So obviously currencies fluctuate, but a general kind of good rule of thumb is that the pound is going to be between... 1.5 and two times as valuable as the US dollar. So if something is 2,000 pounds, multiply that by 1.5 or 1.6 to get what that would be in dollars. So it's actually more in dollars. 2,000 pounds is more than $2,000. Right. It's like three, $4,000. So exactly. So this gets really expensive really fast. So there were some Apple IIs in the country, but very few. Commodore did very well in Britain and in Europe, especially in Germany. And the reason for that is the way the Commodore was set up. Commodore, the full name of the company was Commodore International. Hmm. Very early on, they had set up branches in various Western European countries when they were still a calculator company, well before they got into computers. And the interesting thing was that the branches operated mostly independently from the main office. Basically, the manager of Commodore UK, the manager of Commodore France, the manager of Commodore Germany, they were almost completely autonomous in their business dealings. That's sort of like how uh, it was with Sega, how they were completely autonomous to each other. Absolutely. And it's a little more unusual to have a setup like that back then in the computer business. So Commodore US was always a little bit hamstrung because of the relationship between Jack Trammell who was the president and CEO of the company, and Irving Gould, who was the chairman and largest shareholder of the company. Basically, Commodore in the 1960s got involved in the largest financial scandal in Canadian history, because at that time, it was actually a Canadian company. And this was uh, the Atlantic acceptance scandal. It's very complex. I'm not going to get into the economics of it. But suffice it to say that they were involved in this Mm -hmm. very bad scandal. And they came out of it without going to jail, and they came out of it without losing the company, but they came out of it in such a weakened financial situation that Jack Trammell had to sell off a majority 
stake in the company in order to keep it afloat, and Irving Gould was the investor that he sold it to. Okay. Irving Gould had no interest in product development. He had no interest in marketing. He had no interest in anything. The only thing he was interested in was having as much money as possible to maintain his Playboy lifestyle. And so he wanted to invest in a failing company in order to maintain that? Well, because he got it at a bargain. Hmm. So he understood that Jack was a good businessman, and he had confidence that Jack would turn around the company. And because Jack was in a desperate state, because he was so financially hurt by the scandal, he got the stock really cheap. And it's not like Commodore was his only investment. Just like any stock market player, he had lots of investments. But this is an investment that he had a majority share in. And so if Commodore did well, he was going to make so much money because he bought so low. Okay, so he, just, he had confidence in the company and just thought, okay, this is so low because they got punched really hard. I can make a boatload of money in order to maintain my lifestyle. Exactly. And I mean, he was a jet-setting playboy. He had a very detailed schedule of where he could be when around the world to make sure that he did not spend enough days in the United States that he would qualify to pay more in income tax. I mean, this is one of these guys that's just, I mean, he had tax shelters in the Cayman Islands and the Bahamas and all of these places where people do tax shelters. You know, he's just one of these guys that hides money everywhere and pays as little in tax as he can. And all he cared about was the Commodore stock price. Hmm. He wanted that stock price to run, and he didn't want there to be many expenses. He watched Jack Trammell like a hawk. He never let Jack Trammell raise money in the markets. A public company like Commodore was, when they're getting ready to launch a new product and they don't necessarily have a lot of cash on hand, what you'll do is you'll offer more shares of stock to raise money in the markets. Mm -hmm. Irving Gould didn't want his stock to be diluted because, obviously, when you raise money in the markets, you're issuing more stock which dilutes the shares that you already have. You're increasing the number of shares you have. Therefore, each individual share is worth less. Exactly. And Gould didn't want anything to dilute his stock, so he never let Jack Trammell raise money in the markets. Jack never had much money to do anything with, and to Jack's credit, he was very good at operating under these circumstances because he himself was a bit of a tightwad. He would authorize all expenditures over, I think, $1,000. Remember, this is the CEO of a multinational, publicly traded company. And everything over $1,000. He had to personally authorize. He must have been doing that day in, day out. And he was a workaholic, so he was fine with that. But if he was ever gone for a period of time, I mean, he didn't take vacations, but if he was just out touring a factory in another part of the country, say... Commodore ground to a halt because nobody could do anything while he was gone. And it's not like now where you have cell phones for executives or computers where they can remote into the office and work from their hotel room. They were lucky to get a hold of him when he was back in the, if I have all these messages on whatever hotel he was at and if I had a whole bunch stack of them under the door, call us back, approve this, approve that. <laughs> right. So Commodore USA operated under two very big constraints. One is that Irving Gould wouldn't let Jack Trammell get the money he needed to launch product. The other is that Jack Trammell was a bit of a tightwad himself and also didn't believe in marketing very much. And so even if he had had more money, he wouldn't necessarily let people spend it. There were no budgets in Commodore because, of course, he had to approve everything. Jack Trammell's philosophy was if you give someone a budget, 
that gives them a license to steal, so to speak. Not that they're stealing money from you, but if you give a person a budget, they're going to find ways to spend all the money you give them in the budget. Which is to be fair, because you see that a lot in government projects where they go, if you don't use everything we allocate in your budget, obviously you don't need to have that much money in the future, so your budget in the future will be less. And so sometimes at the end of fiscal years and a lot of government contracting work, they go, oh, we got to spend $2,000, $3,000, $20,000 so that our budget next year does not go down. Exactly. So that's what happens. And so he didn't believe in budgets, and he personally authorized all expenses, and he didn't really believe in marketing, and so he didn't like to do a lot of marketing. So because of this, Commodore was almost always at a disadvantage in the United States. The one time he was given a lot of money and agreed to invest in a marketing campaign was when the Commodore 64 was launched. And that's a big part of why the Commodore 64 was so much more successful than some of the other Commodore product in the United States. Now, in Europe, Jack is not overseeing Europe. Mm -hmm. Irving Gould is not directly overseeing Europe. Irving Gould is not directly interacting with these other people because Jack is head of Commodore USA. He's also the head of Commodore International. He's the head of the whole company. So he's the only guy that's dealing directly with Irving as the chairman of the board. Mm -hmm. So these managers overseas aren't dealing with the same limitations. Obviously, they can't raise money in the markets because they're a publicly traded company in the U.S., but they have a lot more leeway to do their own marketing. They have a lot more leeway to set their own budgets. They have a lot more leeway on how to sell their product. And Commodore Germany and Commodore UK in particular had really great managers that were really good marketers and really great brand builders. And so with the Commodore PET, the first uh, computer they released, you know, part of the Trinity, they built a lot of brand loyalty around the Commodore PET. Hmm. And then they were able to extend that brand loyalty into the VIC-20 and especially into the Commodore 64. So that's why the Commodore 64 became popular in Europe is because it went all the way back to that first pet and the way that they built brand loyalty slowly and steadily so that even though the Commodore 64 was a slightly more expensive machine than the homegrown computers, especially in Germany, Commodore was like the IBM of Germany hmm. back then, just in that brief period of time. There was this kind of feeling that you're paying a premium, but that's okay because you're paying for this great brand. Plus, the other thing that you have to remember about the British market and the European market is cassette-driven, so people aren't buying the disk drives. Also, people are usually not buying monitors. They're almost always hooking their computers into a television. Hmm. So that brings the cost down a little bit because you're not paying for the monitor, you're not paying for the disk drive, both of which are very expensive add-ons. We were talking a little ways back, we kind of got off on this, but we were talking about how the computers were very expensive to import. The British people really didn't have a lot of money in this period. This was a period, and I'm not really a historian of Britain in this period, so I may get some of the, the details wrong, but kind of in broad strokes, they'd been a welfare state, as people call it, since shortly after the end of World War II when the Labour government came into power, which meant that a lot of the business sectors were nationalized, like mm -hmm. some of the energy sectors and whatnot national health care, and other welfare programs. They had, the Labor Party had transformed into welfare state. By the end of the 70s, this was causing difficulty. They were having trouble continuing to pay for some of these programs. Mm -hmm. And so the government wasn't necessarily doing well. The labor unions were agitating a lot during this period. There was like a strike 
every week in some critical sector or another. The economy was kind of in recession. Things were slowing down. The standard of living in Britain was lower than it was in the United States. People did not have as much disposable income. In some ways, they were better off in the United States because at least their health care was paid for and there was a basic social safety net in place. But in Mm -hmm. terms of luxury items, higher class items, they didn't have as much spending power as the typical U.S. consumer did. So they couldn't afford expensive things like very fancy computers, and especially not fancy computers with monitors and floppy disk drives. Yeah, so pretty much the Apple is completely out of the average person's budget. Exactly. So they started with kit computers around 1978, this kind of do-it-yourself electronics thing. Similar to the Altair 8800. Right. Uh, Same kind of idea, though in some ways more limited. I mean, the Altair, of course, was very basic right out of the box, but the Altair was also very expandable. Mm -hmm. Some of these early computers in Britain were very limited, and they were not expandable. Oh. They were a little more sophisticated than the basic Altair that you just got out of the box, Mm -hmm. but not nearly as sophisticated as an Altair with a couple of expansion boards plugged into the bus. You're talking about calculator keyboards rather than touch-type keyboards. You're talking about sometimes even LED displays rather than monitors. You're talking about something that's almost more of a calculator than a computer with the very early kits. And the big kit company in the United Kingdom in this time period was Sinclair Radionics. Mm -hmm. Sinclair was founded by a fellow named Clive Sinclair, who later received a knighthood, so he is now Sir Clive Sinclair. And he he was an enthusiast himself. He didn't really have that much training in electronics, but he started writing for British electronics hobbyist magazines, stuff similar to popular electronics in the U.S. in the 1960s. He moved on from writing articles to making his own kits, things like stereo amplifiers and later calculators and those kind of do-it-yourself projects. Sinclair, his kits were cheap. They were affordable, which is good, but Sinclair products had a tendency to not quite work right. So they used cheaper components that wouldn't hold up very well. And idiosyncratic methods of putting all those components together in order to save money. So it doesn't make sense so much as to how you put these parts together in order to achieve the desired effect. So if this random component breaks or has a problem, you're not sure why. Right. And sometimes things would explode. Explode, as in fire. Yeah. Sometimes things would explode because these were not always the best put together pieces of equipment. He had one of the first pocket calculators, a kit, not assembled, obviously. And that tended to explode if you left it on too long. Oh, dear. And then they had the thing that really kind of epitomized them is in about 1975 or so, they released a product called the Black Watch. The Black Watch was one of the very first digital watches. It didn't keep time very well. Isn't that what you want a watch to 
Yes, it didn't keep time very well. And like the calculator, it also had the tendency to explode. Oh, great. Now we get to blow up our house and we get to blow up our wrist. <laughs> so the Black Watch was a massive failure and it basically sunk the company. It destroyed Sinclair. Now, in Britain, because of this whole welfare state setup, just because your company has gone down the tubes doesn't mean that you don't have a recourse. He negotiated a deal with the government where the government was going to bail him out because Sinclair was a very well-known name at this time. There was an attempt to basically save the company, and the government bought into it and never really accomplished much with it. And so then Clive then spun out into a different company called Science of Cambridge, and it was actually the Science of Cambridge company that released their first computer kit that Sinclair did. Then there were problems with that company, and he spun out into another company. There were a lot of spinoffs until you finally got to Sinclair Electronics, which was the company that would release the majority of their computers later on. So he released this kit computer, the Mark 14, and this was introduced in 1977. And it was this very basic kit. It's had the characteristics I was talking about before. It looked much more like a desktop calculator than a computer, but mm-hmm. it was technically a computer. And after that, his right-hand man, the guy that kind of built this Mark 14, Chris Curry, wanted to bring the company fully into computers because he really thought microcomputers were going to be the next big thing. And at that point, Sinclair didn't want to do it. Huh. He he didn't think there was going to be a market there that they could tap, at least not yet. And so they had a big disagreement, and Chris Curry left the company. Chris Curry founded his own company, also in Cambridge, as that Science of Cambridge name implies. They're all in Cambridge. Cambridge University is the main technical math and science university of the United Kingdom. It's kind of the MIT, I guess, in a way, of the UK. You know, Oxford and Cambridge are the two big universities in the country, and Oxford is more of the humanities school, and Cambridge is more of the science school. So think of it in the United States standpoint as Harvard and MIT. Exactly. I mean, Sir Isaac Newton came out of Cambridge. That was mm-hmm. that was the big school. So obviously there were a lot of technical people kind of cl- clustered around Cambridge. And so Chris Curry goes on and founds his own company, which is Acorn, and he founds it with an Austrian guy named Hermann Hauser, Austrian living in the UK, who's also a very hardcore technical guy. And they kind of introduce the first real computer in the country, which is the Acorn Atom. The Acorn Atom was a pretty small, pretty basic computer, but it was a step above these really basic, almost calculator-style kits. And the Atom could be purchased as a kit, but it could also be purchased fully assembled. So that's a useful thing. It's based around the 6502, just like that early Apple computer is, just like the Commodore 64 is. Commodore 64 actually uses 6510. It's a variation, but it's... Close enough. Same basic architecture. It only has 2K of RAM. Oh, dear. This is a hallmark of the very early British computers having very little RAM because, again, of course, memory is expensive. RAM has always traditionally been extremely expensive. That's always the major limiting factor in pretty much every single system until pretty much now. Yeah, no kidding. And so all of these early British systems have a pathetic amount of RAM because they really have to keep the cost down. So it only has 2K of RAM. 
it doesn't have a very high resolution because, of course, we talked about before, resolution takes memory. <laughs> the smaller the pixels get, the more memory you need in order to display something. And also, you probably don't really have much in the way of high-def screens because you said that they're hooking them up to TVs, and especially old-style TVs had atrocious resolution. Exactly. So you're looking at your full-color mode only basically being uh, a 64 by 64 screen. They also had a 64 by 96, uh, and that only those only gave you four colors. You could get a slightly higher resolution screen. You get up to 128 by 96, but then you're monochrome. There was also... A well, six- at least with the monochrome one, you can do word processing because you said before that you need at least 80 columns before you can... Exactly, do to do anything. proper word processing. And there was a, a 64... There was a 64 by... 192 resolution as well, but again, only four colors. So you could get a little bit of resolution on it, but four colors, which is very, very basic. And that's, of course, because there's just a complete lack of memory. It was expandable. You could get up to uh, 12K in there. So you could get a little more in. And it did have some ROM. So things like basic were stored in ROM. Didn't Mm -hmm. have to take up precious RAM to do certain things. So So you could put it in a plug-in card or chip or something that has basic and some other programs on it almost like it's a cartridge base right and for instance there was also a separate floating point chip that you could add in that was done in rom so you could do your floating point in rom and not take up so you know they did use tricks to get it a little more functional than 2k of ram would suggest but you're still looking at something more primitive than what an apple II can do or even what a Trash 80 can do in some ways, though these this did at least have graphics, unlike the Trash 80, which in its original form was just character-based. Well, in a way, you can sort of see these as sort of more primitive, simpler computers, because the way that we are able to do things now is that we take the load off of the main CPU and the main central RAM. You have video cards that take the graphics processing off, you take and have the video processing storage off, You have sound cards that handle audio processing. You have specific networking chips that handle the networking. And it sounds like in a way with them having basic and other capabilities with floating points and such on ROM on separate chips, you can then sort of have sort of more capabilities out of the system because you're pulling the loads off of the main chip and the main RAM. Exactly. And they did even have a video display generator in it as well, kind of a video display g- generator. It's it's not quite, and again, I'm not a technical person. I mean, it's not quite a full GPU in the way we think of graphics card today, but it does provide some video memory. So they did have uh, an additional kind of 1K of video memory in this uh, video display generator that was also expandable up to 6K. So they're pulling stuff in in certain ways. But of course, a lot of this is expandability and a lot of this is add-on. And if you're someone making a program for something, you usually target the lowest common denominator because you want to make sure you reach the maximum number of systems. So even though we can say, well, you know, you can expand the ROM up to 8K and you can expand the RAM up to 12K and you can expand the video RAM up to 6K and it's like, and it starts sounding like a lot when you put it all together fact of the matter is most software is not going to take advantage of that maximum expandability because there's a lot of expense involved in that. So the majority of your audience is not fully expanding their computer. 
and you don't want to sell software that can only be played by a percentage of a percentage of a percentage of your market that has all the bells and whistles. You see this with the Apple II because there were two, three more generations of the Apple II. And even though the Apple IIe had the capabilities of actually doing more colors, more graphics, more everything, whenever you were making a game, you made it so that it was to that lowest common denominator, the original Apple II, because you don't know who's purchasing that software. They may have the Apple IIe, but they could also just have the original Apple II. That's exactly right. So you have to think of an Acorn Atom really in terms of being a 2K system, 2K RAM, 8K ROM. 1K video RAM. And so it's it's pretty limited, especially compared to what's going on in the U.S. by this point, because by 1980, you've got the Atari system, for instance, that just blows that away in terms of memory, in terms of resolution, in terms of colors, in terms of everything. And it's kind of funny thinking the Atari blowing anything away. <laughs> right. Well, I'm talking about the Atari 8-bit computer, which, remember, was well ahead of its time, not, oh. the, not the VCS. Okay. Making sure there. Exactly. And of course, by this time, the Apple II has evolved into the Apple II Plus, which has its 48K of memory. So this is a very primitive system for the time. Sinclair also does release a system in 1980, because by this time, he's finally come around to the idea that, okay, maybe computers are something that we really should be getting into. So even though he had this big rift with Chris Curry, he does get back in. And his system is the ZX80. Mm-hmm. This was, oh boy. <laughs> the Acorn Atom was a very limited computer, but it felt like a computer. Well, that's because we're doing all this offloading stuff. Mm-hmm. The ZX80 is really astoundingly primitive. It uses a Z80 processor, which is a good processor decent compared to the 6502. It's kind of interesting. The ZX80 actually has a higher clock speed, but because Mm -hmm. the 6502 is more efficient in the way it does processes, a one megahertz 6502 is actually pretty much equivalent to a three megahertz Z80 just because of the way it runs routines. Mm -hmm. So the processor is pretty comparable. That's fine. But it has 1K of memory. And that's period. You can't expand that. No, it's expandable. But what I mean by period is no ROM, no separate video memory. 1K is powering the entire thing. So unlike the other one, this system doesn't have video and other things offloaded on other things. You have to cram every single thing you want to do into 1K of RAM. Exactly. And it is expandable. You can expand it up to 16K, which is a a good amount. The uh, 16K chips didn't fit very well in the computer because this is a Sinclair product and Sinclair products never quite work the way they're intended. Oh dear. So it didn't always fit very well, but you could expand it up to 16K. But again, you're talking about looking at a small percentage of people to do the upgrade. So if you're targeting the platform, you kind of have to assume that they only have 1K. Another good example is you talked about the Apple II. Another good example in the video game realm is the N64. Hmm. The N64 had a RAM expansion midway through the cycle that doubled the amount of RAM. There was this little removable cover on the front, and you pulled out the old RAM, and you plugged in the new RAM, and you got twice the RAM. Right. Nothing used it. It shipped with uh, a game. Perfect Dark. Yeah, and it shipped with a couple of other games. 
Perfect Dark was one it shipped with. It also shipped with, I think, Rogue Squadron it might have shipped with. There were a couple of games that shipped with. So, of course, the games it shipped with took advantage of that extra RAM. But almost none of the games made for the N64 took advantage of the extra RAM because you couldn't assume somebody was going to buy that RAM accessory. Mm-hmm. So since it's 1K base, you had to assume that a person only had 1K. That is not enough memory to type and draw the screen at the same time. So every time you pressed a button on the keyboard, the screen would go blank for an instant as it was processing that keyboard command and then redrawing the screen. Oh, my. And what a keyboard. It wasn't a touch-type keyboard. It was a membrane keyboard that was very finicky to use. Couldn't touch-type on it. Mm -hmm. So that was not much of a system, but it was cheap. It was 100 pounds. Which again is closer to, you know, like $150 or $160. Yeah. So that's dirt cheap. So it was affordable. And because it was affordable, it did well. It sold about 50,000 units. And that was in the course of about a year. And for the British market, that's very good. Because first of all, fewer people can afford things. Second of all, it's just a smaller population in the, than in the U.S. U.K. sales figures, raw figures are always going to look puny compared to U.S. figures because the population is so much bigger than the U.S. 50000 in about a year is very good for the British market. So that was a success. But you couldn't do too darn much with it. The uh, Acorn Atom, by comparison, was a little more expensive. We're talking £120 if you bought it as a kit. ZX-80 mm -hmm. was fully assembled. £170 if you bought it fully assembled. So the Atom gave you a little more capability, but it also with a commensurate rise in cost. About twice the price. Exactly. And so the Acorn Atom didn't do horribly or anything, but it didn't do as well as the ZX-80. The ZX-80 kind of lapped the field. And then the next year, he released another computer, the ZX-81. And the 81 had a little more memory. It allowed you to see the screen at the same time as you typed but only if you used a special mode that allowed it to be able to handle that, which meant that if you did have the screen up at the same time, it really slowed down the CPU because it meant more load on the CPU to do both things at the same time. So the ZX81 was still a quirky system, but the ZX81 uh, also did very well, just like the ZX80 did. Just because it just cost so much and it was pre-assembled. Right. And you see, it was even cheaper is the thing. He was actually able to cut the price because it used a lot of the same components. It shipped with the same amount of memory. When I said it had more memory, what I meant is that it was expandable to more hmm. memory. You could expand it all the way up to 64K. Really? But, it, but it shipped still with the 1K. So there were refinements to it. It had a slightly better keyboard, even though it was still not a touch-type keyboard. It had this special mode where you could at least type and see what's going on at the same time, even if it was slow to do it. But most of the components were pretty similar, so he was able to cut the price. This one was 50 pounds as a kit and fully assembled 70 pounds. Mm. So it was even cheaper. In fact, it was the ZX-80 that inspired Jack Trammell. I told you about how Jack Trammell uh, last time was very scared of the Japanese. Right. And wanted to do a low-cost computer. And he got the idea for doing the VIC-20 from these primitive Sinclair computers. Because he saw this is a guy that is doing computers really cheap to sell them to the masses. 
let's do the same thing here and keep the Japanese out. And obviously the VIC-20 was a more capable system than the ZX-80 and the ZX-81 because the U.S. market could handle a more expensive system. Mm-hmm. But these were the systems that expired Jack Trammell to kind of hit that super low end of the market. So the ZX-81, because it was also very cheap, also did very well, but it was still an incredibly primitive computer. So on these early systems, ZX-80, ZX-81, Acorn Atom, there was a small amount of computer game software, but not very much. These were such limited systems, it was very difficult to create decent games for them. Or any games, I would think. Yeah, truly. So there were a couple of companies that sprung up in this period that would persist into later periods, but there wasn't much of a computer game scene in this period. But these computers were all very important because they kind of established what would be the two leaders in that 8-bit market. This Acorn company, Chris Curry, and Sinclair, with uh, Sir Clive Sinclair at the head. So it kind of laid the groundwork. But what really brought computing and computer games to the forefront was actually the BBC. Hmm. The British Broadcasting Company. That's right. So you have to remember again what I talked about before, how there's kind of this very paternalistic British state, this kind of welfare state. So there are a lot of government institutions involved in areas that would not be involved in, say, the United States, where we're based. The BBC was British television and British radio. Pretty much, period. BBC ran a few different television stations, a few different radio stations, and that was media in the UK. Not like here, where you had the private networks develop, like NBC and CBS and ABC. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of synergy between what's going on on television and radio and what the government wants to promote. It's almost like take public broadcasting and put it even more firmly in control of the government than our public broadcasting is. And then have them have the same reach and influence as NBC or CBS. And that's the BBC. Which is a bit hard for at least the American listeners to comprehend. Right. So if the government wanted to promote a nationwide initiative, and they wanted to do so through the media and through programs on television or radio, they didn't have to negotiate anything. They didn't have to get the network on board. They could just collaborate because they were all the government. And I'm sure it's more complicated than that. I'm sure I'm oversimplifying. But the point is, it's all part of the government. So at the end of the 1970s, it became pretty clear that this microcomputer thing may just be the next big thing. And there was a feeling in the entire developed world that if your kid did not know how to program, they were not going to survive in the new economy. That, of course, turned out to be false. Right. You need to know how to interact with a computer. You don't actually need to know how to program. But at this period of time, when, of course, computers, where basically you practically had to program, know how to program just to get a computer to do something for you, because you just have that blank cursor on the screen. Right. The computers are so primitive that in order to interact with the computer, you have to know how to program in order to even interact with it. Think of the Apple II. You turn the thing on, and then you have to hit the reset button. You want to see how funny this is. There's a uh, video I'll throw in the show notes of kids now interacting with old computers and they interact with an Apple II. And it's funny them going, 
how do I turn this on? <laughs> how do I interact with this thing? The announcer off screen lets them try a few things at first and then tells them how they go through them. And that their reactions, it's funny. And you just think about that. That's now. That is just 40 years ago. That's not really that long. And you have kids today who wouldn't be able to interact with these systems. Exactly. So, I mean, that's a very good analogy. So it was thought at the time that in order to use a computer, everyone was going to have to need to program. So there was a big, big push to get computers into the schools. And of course, again, in Britain, as in most of the developed world outside of the United States, you have a national school system. In the U.S., you have local control of schools, so you have individual school boards and individual school districts making all the decisions, and you have some vague guidelines about what you need to teach from the state, and even on top of that, some vague guidelines of what you need to teach from the federal government. But there's a lot of local control of the schools. You're kind of given basic goals that you have to reach, basic learning objectives that you have to impart, but how you get there is very much in the control of local school boards. Here are some expected core competencies that we want to see all students have. We don't care how you get there, just get there. Exactly. Britain has a national school system, which means the curriculum is dictated entirely from the top down. And again, I don't know the European school systems well enough. I'm sure I'm getting some of the finer points wrong. But still, it is a top-down system instead of a bottom-up system. That's the big difference between these European school systems and the United States. There was a feeling that computers were going to be the next big thing and that if Britain got its population very computer savvy, they could ride the computer revolution and kind of turn around parts of the British economy. Because this is when a, a period of time when the traditional British industries were not doing well. And so they saw a new industry on the horizon and thought, aha, this is our chance to get in on the ground floor of something new and build a new British industry in computers. And if we can be a market leader, we can get a much more money going into the economy, and we can raise Britain up. Exactly. So this was kind of a priority, kind of at the beginning of the 1980s. And so there was a producer at the BBC, whose name I'm sure I'm going to horribly mangle, named Paul Krawazik. Mm -hmm. And he felt that as these computers were coming in, that it was kind of the duty of the BBC to educate the public, not just on, hey, here's computers, they're coming, but here's a computer. This is how you use it. This is how you program it. Kind of do an educational show. As a tie-in to this, they wanted to actually launch a BBC-branded computer. Really? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, BBC wouldn't make this computer because they don't have that expertise in-house, but they wanted to source a computer from one of the nascent developers in Britain and then stamp a BBC label on it and tie it in to this big series that they were going to run on the BBC. And this would kind of be a comprehensive attack on computer literacy to get people involved with computers. Buy your own BBC computer and learn how to use it now on BBC One. Exactly. And, of course, you couldn't have this be a kit. No, no. Then you'd have to teach people how to solder, how to do all this other, whatever else you have to do in order to put things together. Right. So at this time, we have these kind of hybrid computers in Britain, which you can buy fully assembled or in kit form. The ZX81 and the Acorn Atom are both like this. 
this computer needs to be assembled out of the box and it has to be fairly user-friendly to get into. Now, that's user-friendly in terms of 1980. We're not talking about a great GUI interface and all this beautiful stuff that makes these interact with computers today. You're still going to have to know a little bit about basic and basic commands and whatnot to get anything done on this computer, but at least it can't explode. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. So they're putting this uh, series together, and then they're going to source this computer. And they knew exactly where they were going to get this computer from. They were going to take a product that had been started at Sinclair Radionics, which you may remember was Clive's first company, that had then been transferred to another company, and this computer was called the New Brain. Basically, Sinclair Radionics, after the government took it over, Sinclair bailed on it, founded Science of Cambridge. And the government tried to prop up Sinclair Radionics for a while. That didn't work. So they transferred some of the promising products to other companies that they also had an interest in and just closed down Sinclair Radionics. So the government had an interest in a company called Newberry Laboratories uh, that was making this new brain. And this is, again, this kind of government synergy thing. Sinclair Radionics had been a disaster, and the takeover of Sinclair Radionics had been a disaster. So they wanted to get something tangible out of the fact that they had propped up this company that they ended up having to close. So mm -hmm. they're like, again, it's this whole interconnected British government thing. It's like, we've got the National Television Network running this program, and so let's take this computer that we own and use that because then we get some benefit out of this company that we took over, and so it's this whole interconnected thing. Right. They didn't want to tell the public that. Let's, let's put it that way. So they ran an article that said that they had selected the New Brain computer after a bidding process, and New Brain won, Newberry Laboratories won. There was no bidding process. Yeah. Chris Curry saw this article, mm -hmm. head of Acorn, and he and Clive Sinclair weren't on the best of terms, but they were still kind of on speaking terms at this point. Later, they wouldn't be. And so he sees this, and he's like, there was no bidding process. I'd have known if there was a bidding process. I have one of the bigger computer companies. Yeah, no one came to me and said, hey, let's get these computers. So he called up Sinclair and said they did this thing, you know, without consulting any of us. And so then they both contacted the BBC and said, you know, this is outrageous. We're two of the biggest, you know, companies. Nobody talked to us. And the BBC came back to Chris Curry only. Hmm. which end up being a bit of a sore point here, and said, fine, you have something uh, ready to go? And it's like, well, yeah, we can have something ready for it. It's like, we'll come in on Monday. They had this conversation on Friday. Oh, God. They were working on a new computer. It was nowhere near completion. But basically, they were given this very small window to show something to the BBC. Hello, overtime. That's right. Now, they, like I said, they did not contact Sinclair. And mm. nobody knows for sure why, but the logical reason for that would be, remember, they bought Sinclair Radionics and had a disaster with it. So they don't want to go after someone who they had a past history with who had shown to be failure. Right. Who had shown to be failing. Right. So, and who makes products that sometimes Explode. blow up. Only sometimes. So that became a very big sore point between Sinclair and Chris Curry because Sinclair didn't get asked to show a prototype 
after mm-hmm. he wrote a letter in conjunction with Chris Curry saying, why didn't you talk to us? So, yeah, they work like crazy and they get something that just barely works together in time for this show. Not show, in time for this demonstration. And they show it to him and they end up getting the contract because it turns out the new brain is still a disaster. That's not really working very well. Mm-hmm. And so they do go with the Acorn product. And so that Acorn computer gets rebranded as the BBC Microcomputer, or for short, the BBC Micro. Okay. The BBC Micro kind of ends up occupying the space that the Apple II occupies in the U.S. It's a little bit pricier of a system. Sells for 235 pounds, which is really quite a lot. Oh, yeah. But in exchange for that, you get a little more functionality. Still a 6502 processor, but it's a 2 megahertz 6502 instead of a 1 megahertz. So the clock speed's a little faster. And as we said before, compared to the Z80, it's much more capable. Right. It's a base of 16K of memory, which is a very solid base of memory. Expandable up to 32. And like the earlier Acorn computer, it also has ROM. It has this, again, this hybrid RAM-ROM thing. So it's also, in addition to that, got 32K of ROM, expandable up to 128. So you could preload up a whole bunch of stuff onto there, plug in a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. It has a very nice display capability of 640 by 256 with eight colors. That's nice. Which is very good. So like the Apple II, it's pricier and it's a little more capable. But this also, like the Apple II, puts it out of the hands of a lot of people. So it doesn't get that same penetration in the home. But also like the Apple II, because it's the state's computer, essentially, mm-hmm. BBC stamp computer, when the British school system decides to make computer instruction mandatory around this time period after this BBC documentary airs, they, of course, make the BBC Micro the computer of the school system. And there is only one school system. Yeah, so it penetrates the entire British economy and all the schools get BBC Micros. And so all the things the kids learn on is BBC Micros. That's right. So it occupies kind of a similar place to the Apple II. However, unlike the Apple II, it does not become the main game platform. It really stays mostly in the schools because of the price. And because unlike the Apple II situation, where there was not a viable low-cost competitor until the Commodore 64 came out, because Atari and Commodore and Texas Instruments and all these companies that we talked about approached the market in ways that made it so that the Apple II remained on top. Disastrous ways. Sometimes disastrous. The BBC Micro had a competitor that came out very soon afterwards in 1982, and that was the ZX Spectrum. Ah, the Z- ZX Spectrum. The one that we've alluded to a few times. That's right. The ZX Spectrum was kind of, in this period, it was the British microcomputer in the home and in the games industry. A couple of years later, of course, the Commodore 64 comes in too, and then they kind of share that mantle, and it becomes kind of, it's almost like, how in the early 90s in the United States you had Nintendo kids and you had Sega kids? Mm-hmm. In kind of the mid-80s in the UK, 
you had Spectrum kids and you had Commodore 64 kids. And, you know, you had your playground fights on which system is better and this and that. Well, obviously the Commodore 64. I, I'm, I'm not going to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of the, the big kind of technology fight there. But, of course, it takes a couple of years for the Commodore 64 to really start penetrating. So in the 82-83 period, you're talking about the Spectrum as the really main thing. The ZX Spectrum continues the Sinclair tradition of very quirky products and products that are sometimes a little skeezy, but are so much cheaper than the competition. Did they still explode? No, no. It was it was decently built in that sense. It had essentially a real keyboard. It was still a little strange, but it was essentially, it was no longer this membrane thing. It was essentially a real keyboard. It had uh, that standard Z80 processor, which, again, is a good processor. And it had a base of 16K of memory. Okay, so finally we got the memory up to the point that it's actually a viable computer. Exactly. So this became really the main games machine in Britain alongside the C64 because it, it could do some things. Now, it still had that quirkiness. Their basic was always a little strange. The basic that they put uh, on the computer was always a little strange compared to some of the mainstream stuff that Microsoft was doing and that was found in things like the Commodore 64 and the Apple II and whatnot. And then the other thing that was very strange about it was the way it did the screen. And again, this is a money-saving thing. So the way that both the Commodore 64 and the ZX Spectrum worked in order to maximize the amount of colors you could have going on in terms of your memory, is it divides the screen into cells. And one of the videos in our show notes from the last episode goes into more detail on this. But basically, you divide the screen into usually 8 by 8 cells of pixels, and you individually control what color is showing up in those cells. And you can only have a certain number of colors active in a cell in a particular cell at a given time. And this goes again to memory limitations because you're only devoting a certain number of bits to that portion of the screen in order to save your overall memory. Mm-hmm. But this allows you to get more colors on the screen. So when we talk about the C64 being a 16-color system, you could have 16 colors all over the screen at once, but that's only because you divided your screen into individual cells, each of which could only have, say, two colors active at a time. And that saved your screen memory like crazy. Because if every single part of the screen could theoretically have 16 colors at any given time, you would have to devote way more bits per pixel in order to get that functionality. Right. For a certain resolution, in order to have everyone have the same level of graphics, it would probably take something like 16K of RAM while if you just have it so that you have this thing split things up, it then becomes you only need 9K of RAM because you're limiting how many colors are in a certain area. Um, I'll put the same video into this episode's show notes so that you can reference that as well. Right. So both systems had this uh, cell division where you could only have a couple of colors each, but the ZX Spectrum had a couple of limitations compared to the Commodore 64. First of all, even though it had 16 colors, it really only had eight. Because what you had is you had eight colors that you could display at two different intensity levels. 
Mm. So the different intensity levels kind of created different shades of the same color, but that still kind of limits your palette in a way. They're sort of like hunter green and regular grass green or sky blue and royal blue. Not sky blue, cerulean blue. I've always liked cerulean blue. What's so great about cerulean? Do you know what I'm referencing? No. I'm referencing the X-Files. Uh-huh. Our audience will get it. Well, fine. <laughs> Hi, audience. I fail. I haven't watched the X-Files since I was young. <laughs> but that's true. So, you know, it's a kind of limited palette. Another thing is, is that in the ZX Spectrum, you could have two colors per cell, but only one foreground, one background. I believe the C64 allowed you to mix and match a little more where your colors went in a cell. Not positive, but I think that's true. Yeah, I'm not sure on the specifics of that one either. That's probably something worth more research at some point. Right. And then the other important limitation, and again, this is a cost-saving kind of thing, there were no hardware sprites. And we've talked about before, hardware sprites make everything better. Right. So when you divide your screen into cells, you only have two colors per cell. And you cannot then have individual objects bleed over between two cells that have a different color scheme. So if one cell is showing blue and the other cell is showing orange and you want your object to be an orange object, it cannot go to the part of the screen that has blue turned on because then your object is suddenly going to turn blue because orange is not defined in that cell. So what happens is you get something called a tribute clash, basically where something becomes two different colors if it's on the boundary of a cell. Because, of course, the same, prod, uh, the same object I'm talking about, if it ends up resting half in one cell and half in another, the other cell, it's going to be blue in the half that's in the one cell and orange in the half that's in the other cell. And that's called a tribute clash, when you have two different color attributes being applied to the same object because it's crossed a cell border. And that's because of how we try to save RAM when we're doing colors, because we have to do this whole color square thing. And if there's no hardware sprite, which is sort of like independent video RAM that's just really, really small, you can't overwork that. Exactly. Now, as we discussed before, sprites ignore what is going on on your bitmap. So you can have a sprite that has its own defined size and its own defined color scheme. And that will remain constant no matter where you have it on the screen because it is drawing from a separate sprite generator. It is not drawing from the video RAM and from the bitmapped image. It has its own separate memory that's dedicated specifically for it. It's not going off of the system RAM. It is just this little whatever size they decide to say the sprite is, say it's 8 by 8 or 16 by 16 That's all the RAM that's dedicated for the sprite. But that's independent of the system. Exactly. ZX Spectrum can't do that. Any of your moving objects are going to be part of the bitmap. And therefore, as they move through cells, they're going to change. So the trick became on the ZX Spectrum, how do you create objects that aren't changing color in awkward ways every few pixels across the screen? And so, again, it took a really hotshot programmer to do that well. And what most programmers ended up doing, quite frankly, was monochrome for their moving objects. You'll notice that in a lot of Spectrum games, the 
protagonist and the enemies and whatnot are all just white because white's going to be defined across all of the different cells. And then you don't have to worry about that because you can have two colors. So you have a background color and a foreground color. So if you put your object, like your player character, in the foreground and just leave him white, then he will remain a consistent color across all the cells because you're going to make the foreground white in all the cells. And then you put your color into the background images because the background color is independent from the foreground color. So you're not going to have a tribute clash between your player character in the foreground and your scenery in the background. You still have to be very careful, especially if you're scrolling the screen, to make sure that your color remains consistent. And in fact, a lot of Spectrum games are flick screen games instead of scrolling games if you're moving between different scenes. And that's because that makes it easier to keep your cells all the way you want them and not have a tribute clash. Because then if your background is never moving, you can define the colors in all the individual portions the way you want. And you don't have to worry about a tribute clash occurring because you have a static image that's never going to cross cells. Think of the original Zelda in the dungeon. Whenever there's, you transition between the screen, it just sort of stops everything. You, it redraws the screen as it, we want it to be, and then you continue on. Think of that as a more advanced version of how it was being done on the ZX Spectrum, because you get to the edge of the screen, you're trying to go through that door, and then it's got to redraw the whole screen as you go to the next play area. But we need to keep all the colors consistent for how we want to envision it for each play area. That's exactly correct. So those were kind of some of the quirks of the ZX Spectrum that made it kind of difficult to program for and made it kind of difficult to have particularly good graphics, especially compared to the Commodore 64. But then you have the flip side again, because it is a bitmap screen and because it takes a lot of individuality to program it, Mm -hmm. you get a lot of variety. So you run into that same thing where Commodore 64 games kind of tend to all have the same basic kind of mechanics and the same basic kind of graphics because the system is particularly adept at doing a particular kind of game. Whereas on the ZX Spectrum, you're in complete control of how you are putting elements on the screen. And that leads to more variety in how things are done and it can lead to more variety in genre. So I think in a way you have some more innovative and interesting games on the spectrum, and then you have some more kind of technically accomplished games on the C64. Do you happen to know of any games that came out on both the ZX Spectrum and the C64 that sort of show a comparison between the capabilities of the C64 and the ZX Spectrum? One game where you can kind of see some of these differences is a game called Uridium. It was a very popular scrolling shooter on the system that was originally created for the Commodore 64, which is particularly good at scrolling shooters type games. And it was created by a wonderfully brilliant programmer named Andrew Braybrook. Even though, theoretically speaking, the Spectrum shouldn't do that great a job of doing a scrolling game, it actually works very well in terms of the scrolling on the Spectrum. But you can see when you compare the two that the Commodore 64 version is very colorful and the Spectrum version is essentially monochrome. And that's because even in in both the foreground and the background, because you cannot have a colorful background scrolling scrolling. on a Spectrum because there's going to be color clash going on all over the place. So that all goes down to the fact that the ZX Spectrum doesn't have sprites. 
That's correct. So iridium is a very good example, at least, of that kind of monochrome versus color thing that had to be done. And really, iridium was accomplished on a spectrum. This was a little later on, so it was a spectrum with more memory. But most programmers would not have been able to implement a smoothly scrolling game like Iridium nearly as well. This goes in part to this great programmer again, and it goes back to the theme that we had before, where on these 8-bit systems, the programmer really was king. If you did not have a hotshot programmer, you did not have a game. And this is kind of why it took so long for creative types that had no programming ability at all to kind of be accepted as game designers, at least in the West, Mm -hmm. because on both the early consoles like the VCS and the early 8-bit computers, you had to have the programming skills. So it was considered more valuable most of the time to have a hotshot programmer that may just be an okay game designer rather than have a brilliant game designer and then have to hire a separate person to do the programming at additional expense. Mm-hmm. Another question. You talked about with the Commodore 64 that it had this really awesome sound chip. What did the ZX Spectrum have in comparison to that? Did they have a good sound chip or was it just sort of second rate? Now, the sound on the Spectrum was nowhere near the Commodore 64 because, quite frankly, nobody had sound anywhere near the Commodore 64. That SID chip was so far ahead of its time that nobody could really come close to it. Yeah, basically, the Spectrum. Kind of like the old IBM internal speaker. I mean, it was basically just one channel. Mm -hmm. It did have 10 octaves, but it was basically just a beeper that just, you know, beeped out tunes and whatnot. There was an expansion later that gave it two-channel sound Mm -hmm. that allowed it. It was a software hack that gave it two-channel sound, so that gave it a little more sophisticated sound. But no, I mean, Commodore 64 just blew it and everything else on the planet out of the water. All right. So because you had this uniquely British computer, and because even on the Commodore 64, you had a disconnect because it was a cassette-driven market because of the cost rather than disc-driven market, and nobody in the U.S. was interested in cassette games, the British industry really remained kind of isolated, as we talked about. I mean, Sinclair tried to sell the Spectrum, In the United States, they made a deal with Timex to bring it in, Mm -hmm. and it was dirt cheap. I think they were selling it for like $99 when it was introduced, but it was such a limited system compared to what you were getting from the American systems, and it was introduced right before Jack Trammell's price war. So at $99 for the Sinclair, it was already in some ways limited compared to the VIC-20, which was coming in around the same price. It was better in some ways but more limited in other ways. And then very rapidly, the mid-range computers like the TI-99 and the Commodore 64 started being priced like low-end computers. So now you're talking about spending just maybe $150 for a Commodore 64, which is so much better than this little Timex Sinclair system, which is trying to come in at a cheaper price. So it just got buried in the market. Nobody was interested in the Timex Sinclair Spectrum in the United States, it died a quick and painfully, yeah, quick and unnoted death. C64, obviously very big in the United States, but because the American user expected a more sophisticated product based around a disc that can that has more storage capacity, 
not a lot of interest in what was going on on the Commodore 64 in Britain. There was plenty of Commodore 64 software to satisfy the American market. They didn't need the British software. By the end of the 80s, there started to be a little bit of British software coming in from the Commodore 64. Basically, the American companies realized that it would be valuable to have budget software because there was kind of this price point mismatch. They wanted to be able to offer products that were a little cheaper than Mm -hmm. their main products. And so they started looking to Britain for cheaper product to bring into the U.S. They also started kind of repackaging. This was the first time you saw kind of greatest hits compilation kind of software. They would repackage their old classics at a lower price. And they were also looking to Britain a bit to get budget software in to kind of fill this lower end price point. They were really feeling a lot of pressure from the Nintendo Entertainment System at this point. Oh, yeah. And so they wanted software that might attract the kids a little more, the kids that were starting to flock to the Nintendo system. And so they figured cheaper budget software would appeal to parents that are buying stuff for their kids. Well, think of it from the kid's standpoint. I said this before. I came home from school. I tell the Commodore 64 to start loading it from the disk drive, and I have to wait till after dinner before I can play the game. For the Nintendo, where I just go in, put the cartridge in, push play, it comes right up. Oh, wait, there's a great screen. Blow it out a little bit, then put it back in, and then it works. Right. So there was this move to budget software, and that got some British software in the market, but with a couple of exceptions, which we won't get into in this episode. British software really didn't make an impact in the U.S. And of course, U.S. software at first didn't make an impact in the U.K. because it was a disc-based market and the Britain was a cassette-based market. That would also change, which we won't get into in this episode. We'll discuss software later. But they really developed as these isolated industries. They started to merge together a little bit when we got to the 16-bit systems. And the reason for that is that the British market really kind of fell apart. The hardware market. Okay. You've got this competition, Commodore 64 ZX Spectrum, with the BBC Micro kind of off in its own special rarefied corner. And they're all 8-bit systems. In the mid-1980s in the United States, you start seeing the first 16-bit processor systems with decent graphical capabilities. The IBM PC, all the way back in 1981, had a 16-bit processor, though they actually did a hybrid thing because it was an 816 hybrid and it just had an 8-bit bus. Mm. But, of course, the IBM PC in its original form was only capable of four colors in its CGA mode, which is why the early PC was not a game machine. Yeah. The home systems, which a home system in the United States was defined as kind of an under $600 system, the home system wars were all 8-bit systems, with the exception of that TI-99-4A that quickly faded out. In the middle of the decade, you hit the first 16-bit home systems. The Macintosh, mm-hmm. the Atari ST, and the Amiga. We won't get into the history of those 16-bit platforms right now, but suffice it to say, in the U.S., they didn't take off. The home computer market was basically saturated by this point. There was kind of a crash in the American home computer market in 1984. It was the fallout from this ruinous price war that Jack Trammell started. Mm -hmm. And there'd kind of been a disillusionment with the idea of a home computer. The home computer was touted as this system that was going to be useful for everything. You're going to store your recipes, balance your checkbook, 
educational software for the kids. And yeah, I guess you'll play games on it too. Go do shopping. Turned out it was only really good for games, these early systems. So by the middle of the decade, there was really a lack of interest in home computers in the U.S., and so it was very hard to convince American consumers to upgrade to a 16-bit home computer. People were starting to slowly purchase PCs for their home because the idea was you have your PC at work and then you have your PC at home and you can do some work at home, you can bring, bring your work home with you. But of course, it's still until the late part of the decade, later part of the decade when VGA graphics came in, it was still not a particularly flattering game system and people didn't make games for it. So just because you brought a PC home didn't mean you were necessarily playing games on it because there weren't that many games for it. With the IBM PC kind of taking over and with people being burned out on home computers, there was never much penetration of the ST and the Amiga in the U.S., This was also compounded by the problems that Atari and Commodore had with distribution and whatnot, which is beyond the scope of this podcast, but they didn't do well here. Right. In Britain, the home computer was still the primary games platform, and there was less of a disillusionment with home computers. Basically, because the BBC told everybody at the beginning of the decade that your children were going to need to know computers and then brought computers into the curriculum very early, there was this sense that you had to buy your child a computer or your child was going to get left behind in the new digital economy. That's why there was kind of this great penetration of Spectrums and Commodore 64s into the home. The micro wasn't the computer they brought into the home because it was so expensive. But they were like, oh my gosh, my child has to learn programming, and I guess this ZX Spectrum isn't that expensive, so we'll buy you a ZX Spectrum. And if you were well off, you could get a Commodore 64. Sure. So that became a common fixture in the home, and it was actually kind of endorsed by the parents in many cases. And also, we said before, they didn't have so much the consoles. You didn't have the Nintendo, the Atari, and stuff in Europe, in Britain, because of the import and the cost. Right. So it also became the primary game system. So while the NES was starting to really penetrate the U.S. market in 86 and especially 87, it was not penetrating the U.K. market. Uh, Nintendo wasn't even really attempting at that point to seriously market the NES in the U.K. or in Europe. They were selling them there, but again, high cost, and they weren't really pushing it. They were doing it through third parties. They weren't selling it direct, so there really was no European market. So it had become the standard games platform. So it had that cachet to it as well. Plus, Commodore had always done better in Europe, as we previously discussed. So when the Amiga came to Europe, this was considered a big deal because Commodore had a great name brand already. And Atari, at this point, was owned by Jack Trammell. So Jack Trammell still had a lot of contacts in Europe from his days at Commodore. And so the Atari ST was welcomed comparably better there as well. So there was this transition to the 16-bit platforms, and it ended up being the U.S. leading the way. Basically, the British companies dropped the ball. Acorn, once the Spectrum came out, Mm -hmm. Acorn tried to compete with it. Because, of course, the BBC Micro was too expensive. So they came out with a far more limited version of the BBC Micro called the Acorn Electron that was similar in terms of price and capability to the ZX Spectrum. They had a lot of trouble building it, and they missed Christmas the year it was released. 
They had orders mm. for hundreds of thousands of units, and they got like 50,000 units into stores. So there was a big buildup of anticipation for it, and then nobody could buy one. And then, because nobody could buy one, everybody lost interest. Mm. And so they missed and their I window. I need to get something for Christmas, so I might as well buy that ZX Spectrum. Exactly. And so they missed their window completely. They never recovered from that. They were working on a 16-bit computer, but it, it was, again, it was a little too, they were having difficulty with it. It was a little too highbrow and expensive for that standard market. So they ended up in 1985 being purchased by Olivetti, which is a major Italian computer, institutional computing company. I mean, they had been in mainframes and whatnot for a long time. And that was basically the end of, of Acorn. Of course, the final legacy of Acorn was their ARM processor, the first widespread RISC processor. RISC means Reduced Instruction Set Computer. Exactly. Basically, the idea being that you can make a far more efficient chip. There are certain capabilities that a full-featured chip, that a CISC chip has, that, yeah, if you want to be the most powerful supercomputing chip on the planet, you need to have all those features, but you and me on an everyday basis don't use nearly all of the instructions that are available. So the idea of RISC is you cut out all the instructions that get used once in a blue moon. You have a slightly more limited chip just in terms of raw power, but for the specific things you want that RISC chip to do, it runs faster and more efficiently and it's cheaper and, and much more low know, power. Yeah. And if you want to know a little bit of difference between CISC and RISC, CISC is complex instruction set, RISC is reduced instruction set. I'll uh, throw in a show note thing, a video to explain that. Right. So that's kind of the interesting final footnote of Acorn is that they developed the ARM processor that got into the iPhone and almost every portable device in existence. But it's kind of funny because they could have survived long enough and at least to the modern era a bit more, and they could have made a lot of money. Right. Sinclair, meanwhile, Sinclair was never interested in computers. Yeah, we've already said he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, Sinclair saw mass market computers as a way to raise money, but he was interested in other products. He wanted to create a portable television. And he wanted to create an electric car. Really? An electric car back then? Right. And so basically he took all the profits from computers and sunk it into these pie-in-the-sky projects, which, being Sinclair, never worked right. Or exploded. <laughs> right. He was able to create an electric car, but it was this really small, really quirky little thing that nobody wanted to drive, and it didn't have a good battery life, and it was just a disaster, and he could never get his television to work right, because it's Sinclair, he can't get complex electronics to work right. So he sunk everything that he made in computers into these pie-in-the-sky projects that never turned out right, lost a lot of money, got into the 16-bit market a little too late with the QL, was the name of the computer. What, ZXQL or something? Or? Sinclair QL. Sinclair QL. Yeah, he dropped the ZX for that. He saw it as a business machine. He was kind of done with the masses at this point. He saw it as a business machine, so it wasn't really geared towards games. Nobody wanted to use it for business. So the Sinclair QL was a disaster. His other projects were a disaster. The company fell apart, and they started getting competition in the mass market from another company called Amstrad, founded by another knight, Sir Alan Sugar. Sugar came out of the stereo components business. He was just a kind of computers as appliances guy. He's like, I'm not an innovator. I'm just going to take proven technology. I'm going to package it cheaply. And it's going to work, and it's going to be great. And he released uh, the CPC range of computers, which were 8-bit computers that had an integrated monitor, which was unusual at the time in Britain because you more normally used your television. 
and it sold for decent price and it had similar capability. Nobody really created games for the Amstrad as the core platform, mm-hmm. but everyone ported their ZX Spectrum and Commodore 64 games to the Amstrad. And the Amstrad gained a lot of market share because it was reliable and easy and relatively well-priced. And so the Amstrad really cut into the Spectrum market. And he kind of started taking over the 8-bit market in kind of 86 in that period. He actually ended up buying Sinclair after Sinclair fell apart with this television electric car and everything. And so then they released another version of the Spectrum. But you see... Alan Sugar, like I said, he wasn't interested in innovating. So he had no interest in extending the Amstrad CPC line or the ZX Spectrum line, which he now also owned through his purchase of Sinclair. He was not interested in expanding those into the 16-bit market. He was just basically interested in riding that 8-bit wave until it ran out. Milk the cow, so to speak. Right. So that killed innovation there. Acorn, which was a very innovative company, killed itself in the Electron disaster. So there was no... In the mid-80s, there was no British company to pick up the torch and move into the 16-bit computers. So it became Atari and Commodore that took over that 16-bit market in the UK with the ST and the Amiga. And that was basically the end of the British computer industry, microcomputer industry. Mm-hmm. At that point, it was just it was Amiga and ST, and of course, finally, PCs start coming in as business machines. And this unique little oasis that was Britain kind of runs out. And there had never been a computer industry on the continent. I think part of the reason for that is in both France and Germany, they were very early on a proto-internet. I'm not sure if you've heard of the French Minitel system. Basically, back in the early 80s, they had this nationwide system where you could log in and like, buy airline tickets and do stock trading and like very primitive internet things. It would be almost like using some of the early dial-in services that were in the United States, like CompuServe or The Source, Mm -hmm. except that rather than being just one company that's offering you access to their mainframe, it was a nationwide system that everyone could get a Minitel terminal and dial into. And so it was was kind of like a proto-internet, except it wasn't as feature complete is the World Wide Web, and it was only available in the nation of origin. It wasn't worldwide. So you had a French version of a mainframe that was available to the public, and you could get terminals in order to go into this big mainframe. And because a mainframe is sort of like analogous to the internet, you have a local terminal, you have your local computer that goes into the network, so to speak. Right. There was one in the United Kingdom too, but I think because both France and Germany had this system, which they didn't play games on. I mean, it was not serving the same market as a fully-fledged computer. But I think their hardware efforts in computing were kind of devoted to these network systems, and so there wasn't really much of an impetus to create computers. And so while the, the locals were kind of focusing on this, that allowed the outside companies to get very big. So Commodore got huge in Germany. Apple got pretty big in France, and the ZX Spectrum as a cheap game system kind of flooded all of these markets, became very big in Spain especially. While there were computer game companies in some of these countries, all of the development kind of know-how on the hardware side was in Britain. So once the British industry fell apart, nobody in France or Spain or Germany or Italy or the low countries or any of these places took up that hardware mantle either. They were also content 
to go to Atari STs and Commodore Amigas and IBM PCs. So once kind of the light went out on the British microcomputer industry, that was the end for Europe. And even in this early period, there was still some unique software in the 16-bit platforms that never really appeared in the United States. But now that you had common platforms on both sides of the Atlantic, very quickly everything kind of merged and you lost the this kind of unique British PC culture, especially after consoles also started to become big in the mid-90s. All right. So that is how the 8-bit came to pass and how the 8-bit died and the way Britain was able to have its own unique infrastructure eventually melded into the general global computer system. Exactly. All right. Uh, Anything else to cover? I think that about does it. All right. What will we be covering next time? Well, here in this podcast, we kind of did a good job of describing why there was a unique British computer game industry, just Mm -hmm. in terms of the hardware that was released and why that hardware was adopted instead of American hardware. Now what I'd like to do is actually take a little bit of a look at that computer games industry itself, because compared to what was going on in the United States, it was very different. They were targeting different segments of the population. They were making different types of games. And some of what they did there actually ended up having major repercussions on how the global industry developed later on. And so it's very interesting to kind of look not just at the unique hardware that was coming out in the UK, but the unique software as well. So we'll cover all the different video game companies and the software they produced and the type of games they developed and how the British population and the rest of Europe played them. Exactly, in very broad strokes, because you could certainly devote multiple, multiple podcasts to going through all the ins and outs, but at least give an overview of what was happening across the pond. All right, sounds great. And we will see you next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at pcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.